and this is the Driving You Crazy Podcast. It's episode number 18. Nice. Yeah, a dozen and a half in the bag. We can finally smoke, Jason. And yeah, <laughs> oh, really? And vote, too, right? Uh, so many more uh, podcasts to go. It sounds like that's uh, a horrible chore. Really, I just made it sound like this is a horrible event for us every day, but it's really not. It's actually, it's very fun for us. And I am your traffic friend, Denver 7 traffic anchor, Jason Luber. I'm the overnight producer, Denver 7's Joseph Peters. Well, here's a story for you, Joseph. A Nevada State Trooper got a soggy surprise earlier this week when in the course of a routine traffic stop, a passing beer truck dumped its load of beer all over him. According to KSNV, is that the station you worked? No? Nope, that's the NBC. All right. Trooper Travis Smacka, I believe is how it's pronounced. Fantastic. Uh, he pulled over a speeding driver on I-15 in Las Vegas, leaning in the passenger side window. He shined his light into the car and asked the first question most cops of uh, Carlota Speeders would ask. He says, you guys have anything to drink tonight? That's when the truckload of coincidence tipped over on them. The trooper said he heard the sound that always gets the hairs on his neck standing up. Of, of course, the sound of brakes locking up. And then he looks up just in time to see a beer truck skidding down the freeway, spilling cases of beer all over the travel lanes. He, along with the stopped car and its driver, were pelted with dented cans, shattered glass, a small tidal wave of warm beer washed all over them. Yeesh. Thankfully, no one was injured in the incident, but the trooper's uniform, which he had just picked up from the cleaners, of course, will likely smell like a bar floor for quite a while. All I have to say, it hurts being hit with a full can of beer. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. But but I think it was mostly just the suds that got him. Do you recall last year uh, when we had that beer truck overturned on Highway 58 over at I-70? Wasn't it Wheat Miller Highlight? It, it was genuine draft. <laughs> Some MGD out there all over I-70 to below. Not nearly as dramatic as this story, though. Taste the Rockies, man. So how do you refer to when two vehicles come together in an unexpected situation? Do you say crash, accident, wreck, fender bender, T-bone, smash up, mishap, or pile up? Jeff Larson, the Massachusetts Director of Highway Safety, says there is one word that he definitely doesn't want you, or especially me, to use. And Jeff joins us now on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Hello, Jeff. Hi there. How are you? Great. What is your beef with the word accident? Well, I don't have a beef necessarily with the word accident. There are accidents on the roads, but as a reporter, you don't know if it is an accident in most cases. So I used to be a traffic reporter. In fact, I was for a short period of time a traffic reporter in Denver. And at that point, when I'm looking in my studio at a camera monitor or somebody calls me up and tells me there's an incident on the roadway or if I'm in a helicopter looking down, I know it's a crash. I don't know if it's an accident. So I prefer that reporters try to avoid using the word accidents until they know it is. So when did this become a passionate issue for you? Well, at, at about the time that I stopped being a traffic reporter and started working in highway safety, um, when I started to meet with and talk to victims of drunk driving crashes, people who have been affected by drug drivers, by distracted drivers, people who have been driving in a negligent manner. And when I started to talk to those people, I started to realize that they take issue with the semantics of the words that we use to describe it. When somebody has made a decision to drink and drive, they have made a decision to break the law, they have made a decision and done so knowingly to endanger the rest of us. And if that person gets into a crash, that's not an accident. 
the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in the 90s stopped using the word. The Associated Press last year came out with advice to reporters to avoid using the word, especially in circumstances when there's negligence that's either alleged or stated. And so from that standpoint, reporters just shouldn't use the word until they know that it is, in fact, an accident. And so if a tree falls down and hits somebody, that certainly could be called an accident. But until you know that that person in that vehicle or those people were not drunk or drugged or distracted, driving in a high, high, at a high rate of speed or in some other negligent manner, you should avoid using the word because you don't know it. You're a journalist. Use words that you know. Report facts, not assumptions. And, and you know from your time working here in Denver as a traffic person that we typically use during the winter season when there are too many problems for the police or the sheriff's deputies to deal with, we call it accident alert. You're familiar with that term, I'm sure. So what, how would that get changed? Uh, how do you think that maybe the folks here in Colorado should change that because it is so part of our vernacular here in Colorado? Well, and that's the case in a lot of parts of the country, too. It's not just Colorado itself. So I'm sitting here in Boston, and it's common for traffic reporters to use the word accident here as well. Um, I would say, you know, I mean, any other word that doesn't use the word, you know, you could call it an incident, a crash, a collision alert, you know, any, any other word that describes the physical act. The word accident, what it does is it states, uh, it, it makes a statement about the actions or the intent of the driver. None of those other words, whether it's crash, collision, incident, wreck, T-bone, I think you use. I mean, all of, those, all of those things are just physical descriptions of what happened in the incident itself. It doesn't make any sort of reference to the intent or the negligence of the driver itself. Well, we're talking with Jeff Larson, the Massachusetts Director of Highway Safety, about not using the word accident instead of using the word crash. Well, and what I find very interesting, Jeff, you had mentioned that if a drunk driver is involved in a crash, then you would not refer to it as an accident. As a devil's advocate here, what I would say is that the drunk driver certainly wasn't intending to cause a crash. So where do you really try to draw the line between where you're comfortable using the word accident and where you're more willing to just go with something like crash? Well, it's a good point, but see, I mean, look up the word accident, and intent certainly is part of the definition, but it also refers to the predictability, whether it's an act of God, and it's, it's not. You know, a drunk driving crash is a predictable event. You know, if somebody is, has, has made the choice to break a law, to endanger others, that incident is a predictable event. And if you look at the word, and I'm going back to the definition of the word accident, in part it's about whether they intended to do it, but it's also whether it's, intent, it's, it's, a, it's a predictable event, whether it's an act of God, and those things aren't. So, I mean, think about it this way. So, I don't know if you have kids or not, but if you have kids and you say to your son or daughter, you know what, here's a rule. There's no roughhousing and throwing footballs around in the living room. And your kid plays around throws the football, breaks something, knocks over a lamp, and breaks it, and says to you, oh, Dad, it was an accident. Well, it wasn't an accident because they broke the law. They knew the rule. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. So, Jeff, you, we talked just a moment ago about how the people, at least the agencies here in Colorado, call 
their the time when they can't get to respond to accidents or crashes or rep- reports of other problems during, let's say, a big winter storm. They call it the accident alert, right? So have you had any pushback? Have you tried to go to these uh, agencies and ask them to stop using accident alert or stop using the word accident? And what have the, ha- has there been any pushback with that? Um, there only has been, so we have been talking to different states around the country, um, and most of them are shifting toward moving away from accident. Um, and the reason is, is exactly these things that we've been talking about. Again, uh, NHTSA back in the 90s established a policy, the Federal Highway Department, uh, uh, Federal Highway no longer uses the word accident. And it's, it's all because of the accuracy of the words that are being used. In fact, Waze right now is in the process of talking to state DOTs and asking them about whether they should make a switch from, in their app, the app that most people use or many people use to get their traffic information, to shift away from using accident. Um, so um, many states are shifting, and it's, it's consistently moving toward crash or other words as opposed to accident. Have you tried to work with Colorado, either the DOT or any of the local agencies here? Uh, no, I've had no contact with them directly myself. It would be great if they could make the switch. I would, I would certainly uh, support that. So if a driver went out on the roads out there and hit a patch of black ice, would, that would qualify, in your definition, as an accident or a crash? Um, that could be called an accident. I don't know whether that person was also drunk or speeding or going too fast for the conditions. So, um, so I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, as a, as a reporter, I would not know whether that's an accident or a crash. That driver would. And I wouldn't have any sort of, I would never take issue with the driver saying I was in an accident. Um, you know, if, if that person was drunk, I might have a discussion about them, whether that was actually an accident or not. But, but if you as a reporter are looking at that circumstance and saying, well, that's an accident, have you fulfilled that, your knowledge base as to whether the person was drunk? or, you know, doing something else that caused that situation to occur. I want to tease this out a little bit because I'm curious. So in in our case of the winter driver who gets into a crash, let's say he was out here in Colorado and he didn't have snow tires on his car. Does that qualify as somebody who should have been better prepared for the conditions and that would then be a, a crash and not an accident? Well, again, this, it's, it's, uh, I think any time a person does something that contributes to a circumstance that results in a crash, then, it's, then, then it shouldn't be called an accident. And, and, uh, and my, my point is, is not that there aren't accidents or to quibble with you know, the, the, the various ways of one is an accident and one isn't. Let's just, as reporters, as journalists, and this is who I'm talking to. I'm talking, talking to you guys who are journalists in this circumstance. If you know that the circumstance that occurred was an act of God and couldn't be avoided, then absolutely call it an accident. If you don't know the circumstance of that situation, then don't make the assumption that it's an accident. We're talking with Jeff Larson, the Massachusetts Director of Highway Safety, about not using the word accident and using other words in its place. So, Jeff, you, I'm sure, watch morning television out there in Massachusetts. You probably watch Boston television. Have you worked or have you influenced the local reporters there in the morning to get them to change their vernacular? 
Sure. I mean, I was a traffic reporter in Boston for upwards of 25 years. I worked with WCBB-TV here, and um, they have made a switch in their morning programs away from, at least on the news side, not using the word uh, accident. Uh, WBZ Radio in Boston, which is uh, sort of the primary traffic station in Boston, they no longer use the word accident in their traffic reports. Um, and we've talked to a number of different uh, media outlets around the country, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. There's a newspaper out in, uh, in o uh, Oregon that uh, made a policy that uh, in their style guide, their internal style guide, that avoids uh, use of the word accident. And I think I mentioned earlier in the discussion that the Associated Press, which puts out a style guide for journalists in general, which is sort of considered to be the, the Bible, I think, for um, for style and for semantics and grammar um, for most journalists, they recommend in circumstances where there is negligence that's alleged or proven to not use the word accident in a broadcast or print report. Personally, I try not to use the word accident as much as I can. So I, I try to use the, and I usually use the word crash or wreck or incident, something like that. That's just my own personal feelings on, on what I do, even though other traffic people in the market on radio and television, they will still use the word accident. But I still think trying to get the folks here, especially in Colorado, as you know, from thinking about when the police department, when Douglas County or Denver, whatever, Aurora would say, hey, we're on accident alert now. Make sure you report your crash or your incident. 24 hours when, when we can respond to it. I think that's going to be an, a tough uphill climb to get all the local agencies here, even when the state patrol does it as well, that they are on accident alert. It's going to be tough to, to change that vernacular, and I, I think that'd be a pretty tough uphill climb. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and, and I, I know that it's not, uh, it's not anything we're going to wave a magic wand and people are suddenly going to change the way that they speak. You know, and as a, as a traffic reporter for all those years, that was the word that I used primarily as well. So, um, you know, I, I understand it. I understand that police use it quite commonly. Many uh, departments of transportation use it as well. Um, I should say that the, the International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, established a policy uh, about a decade ago where they made the recommendation that police departments avoid using the word. The New York uh, City Police Department and the San Francisco Police Department both have policies against using the word, recognizing that that's the case. And um, most EMS and, uh, and medical personnel recognize that, uh, that they've uh, needed to make the switch and are going, you know, trying to avoid that in their, in their semantics and trying to switch it out of their common parlance. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to switch topics just a little bit because we have you on the phone and because you have so much experience as a traffic reporter. I wanted to ask you about a question that we've debated a couple of times here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. When you first find out that a crash has turned fatal and maybe you've covered it a couple of times during your morning show and then you get the report that it turns fatal. Do you think that reporters should then stop showing the footage of the crash for fear of alerting the family to something that they may not have known about? What's your policy in those situations? Um, well, so I was a live traffic reporter. I didn't necessarily cover um, reports post, um, but I don't think we ever switched out from um, using video of an incident, whether it was uh, a fatal or not. We certainly didn't. Uh, generally uh, focus closely on the incident itself so that you could make out um, people 
um, you know, our our focus as traffic reporters was the impact on traffic. And so when I was reporting on an incident, I was not necessarily as focused on the circumstances of the event itself, how many were injured. I was focused on the effect on traffic and how long that was going to impact on the overall commute. So um, my general focus has always been on not um, trying to pay attention too much on the incident itself in terms of the injuries and fatalities or you know, what, what that particular circumstance is as to try to communicate how that's going to impact on everyone else's commute. And finally, from me, what what what's next for you in this crusade over the next year, five, ten years down the road? Well, I think it's just it's, it's just trying to keep the conversation going. Um, again, we're excited about the possibility that the primary traffic reporting application in the world is now going to switch. We think from uh, accident to crash. Um, we'll continue to reach out to DOTs, and we'll continue to try to message to communities and to reporters to get them to think about how they're using the word. Um, there's a very active hashtag on Twitter, Crash Not Accident, um, that does a lot of outreach, um, and there are communities that use that quite a bit when they see that reporters are using the word incorrectly, particularly when it's a, a drunk or drugged or distracted driving, driving crash. You know, when there's a crime involved with it, I think that's where people take the most issue. Jeff Larson, the Massachusetts Director of Highway Safety, thanks again so much for being here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for your time. All right, time here for a break. That was a great interview. We hope to do more interviews uh, in the future with the Driving You Crazy podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, we really like that. It's a good change of pace. What side of the car is your fuel tank on, Joseph? Have you ever wondered why it's on that side? Always. Well, that, answer, and much, much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. And you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. Who is the funnest? Is funnest a word? The more fun, the more funnest uh, person to work with on the morning show. Honestly, it's probably Jason. And I'm looking right at him as I'm telling him this. But it is. We have so much fun together. We have a long history together. I know his wife from back in the day. We have almost a little too much fun. We make each other laugh constantly. But I think that's what brightens up our show and it gives it energy and and makes it a, a fun thing to watch. Lisa Hidalgo, only on Denver 7. People say, you get up at 2 in the morning to do this? You must get used to that by now. No. We hate getting up at 2 in the morning. We hate being here at 3 a.m. Except we like our jobs and we like the people we're working with. And we have a lot of fun. We should probably sell tickets to the show during the commercial break. We couldn't air all that material, could we? But it's still a lot of fun. And we're just committed to making sure that, you know, you get your, you started off on your day correctly. So it's worth it to us to get in here before the sun even comes up to put it all together for you. Mitch Jelnicker, only on Denver 7. I can see the sweet sun pouring down in the strawberry sky. Welcome back to the Driving You Crazy podcast where we are striving to ever expand into new territory like this. Are you ready, Joseph? No. A parking space in Brooklyn could be yours for only $300,000. That's cheaper than Aspen. Finding a place to park in New York City, you know it's a tough task, right? Well, apparently it's so bad that some people are willing to pay $300,000 for a simple parking space, for one space. Yikes. Uh, It's enough to buy an apartment in some places in New York. I mean, really. 
All right. So what happened was over there in this part of Brooklyn, there were some parking spots that were removed because they built this big apartment complex. Okay. okay? And so that put a premium on the spaces that remain, including in this one garage that, well, is now charging hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do you believe it? Not in Brooklyn, maybe in Times Square. So this guy who owns this garage says he bought the place for $29,000 per space. So he paid $29,000 for each of the spaces and then bought the whole thing, right? Okay. And now he's charging a lot more. Um. It, it's really... Is that a yearly price? Is that a daily price? No, that's you buy it. It's like you oh, buy it's yours. It. It's yours. Good. You buy it. And just like when you're buying a house, the purchaser of the $300,000 parking space must also provide proof that they can keep up with the monthly payments. Because you buy it for 300000 but just like your house, there's always fees. The owner's going to have to pay $240 in maintenance fees and <laughs> an additional $51 in monthly taxes. What? Yay! Can we really? There are spots that are going for about that much in Aspen right now. Really? Yeah. If you look in the, if you ever go to Aspen or Eagle County or any of those places, and you pick for up the parking local parking spaces, you pick up the local paper out there, and I swear to you, man, they have. If you go to the classifieds and you get past the ten million dollar homes, you'll find the hundred two hundred thousand dollar parking spaces. When I first came here in '93, I uh, used to love to read the Aspen Times. Big fan Preach. of reading the Aspen Times. The the, the most low <laughs> low impact crime stories, like the Connor Kennedy story yeah. where he got he punched a guy outside of a bar. God bless you, Aspen. Love me the Aspen Times. All right, quick. Which side of the car is your fuel tank on? The right one. Is it? Are you sure? I'm positive. Everybody else, no running around your car to look. That's cheating. But the easiest way to do it, really, if you don't know, if you're sitting in your car seat, is is you look for that little arrow right next to your fuel gauge. Mm-hmm. So now people are going, oh, what? that's what that arrow is for. It actually shows you what side of the car your gas cap is on. And so that helps you in a rental car. If you don't know, if you because you're obviously unfamiliar with the car, which side. So you look for that little arrow. But what it doesn't tell you, that little arrow is, why is it on that side of the car? That's That's true. No matter what kind of car you get into, you know what side your steering wheel is on, right? And, and you know what, what side the turn signal is going to be on. You know where the gear shift and the starter usually is, right? But there's no standard place for the fuel pump or the fuel area where you where you put gas in the car. Mm-hmm. Now, you might think there would be at least some sort of consensus in the industry about what side of the car is preferable to place the gas cap. And, and there would be some sort of maybe even an unspoken agreement about where it should go. It, it would make trips to the gas station, I would think, more orderly. Since there'd be no question as to what side of the pump you should pull up on, right? Well, apparently, there are a few rules governing where you can get gas into your car. Of course there are. Since the gas tank is in the middle, you could really comfortably fill up on either side. You used to be able to fill up in the back. My dad used to have one of those Cadillacs that the gas cap was right there behind the drop-down back license plate. But they don't allow those anymore because of the rear-end collision dangers where you'd have you know, flammable liquid spraying all over the place. Uh, the tube could snap, sending that gas all, all over. And it, it would make any minor accident seem much worse. So, so, And some Jaguars, they actually have fueling spots on both sides of the cars because they're a Jaguar. Well, that's smart. And then again, they also have two tanks as well. Some of the big trucks also have two tanks, and they have uh, fueling spots on both sides of the, of the car. So the only current regulation about location require the filling area to be at the widest part of the car, inboard of any crumple zones, and safe from dripping onto any hot exhaust 
uh, or onto any electrical wiring. So this generally means on either side and relatively near the passenger compartment. So that's why it's there. So with that in mind, how do the companies decide which side, the driver's or passenger side, it should go on? Well, the passenger side usually includes most European car makers. Many American car makers also have it on that passenger side. Now, companies who put it on the driver's side are mostly coming from Asia. There's plenty of exceptions, even with the same company, but in rough terms, those divisions are pretty close. Now, Volkswagen always puts their gas cap on the passenger side, and they say it's to keep the filling person away from street traffic. But that doesn't make sense because you can really turn your car close to the street either direction, right? Right. And many car makers say the side they choose depends on how the fuel tanks do in a crash test scenario. And in some cases, it's based on customer convenience. The closer to the driver, the better. Okay. Right? So there's also some technical reasons why any given side may be selected. For cars that are using a mechanical cable-operated internal release for the fuel cover, right? One of those little flips. It's easier to have that release on the same side as the cover on the driver's side because there's less cable to deal with, right? An engineer with Nissan says the placement of the fuel door is mainly a factor of fuel tank design, location, and underbody packaging. I've been working on my underbody packaging for many years. <laughs> my man. With all the structure and components located under, underneath the car, engineers would quickly encounter restrictions in trying to route that tube, the filler tube, down to the gas tank, right? And are the same on every vehicle, just because they're all designed and they look a little bit differently. Interesting. Now, wasn't there a car? Didn't one of the old Volkswagen Beetles have the gas tank in where the trunk was? Or? No, it was in the front. The front. That was what it's it was. It's in the front. It's like on the front bumper. So in that case, oh, not the front bumper, but I mean the front uh, uh, wheel well area. But the fuel, the fuel. God, why can't I not think of the word? Where because you put they the had, gas in. Well, like, here's the reason. I think the reason for the old Beetle is because the engine is in the back. Right. And so the tube was probably easier to go, and then the tank was in the middle, and then the engine was getting the fuel from the from the. But they wouldn't tank. put their gas, you wouldn't put your gas in through the front of the vehicle there, right? They would still have a door on the side of the car. Well, they have a, it was on in. the side. Yeah, it was yeah. on the side front. I think the driver's side front. So the truth, really, both sides have advantages here. Okay. Um, there's an argument that suggests that the distribution of uh, fuel tank sides is actually perfect because if one side or the other were standardized, then that would mean all the gas station lines would be longer since everyone would have to line up for the same pumps in the same direction. But I think folks would just figure it out and they would they would go the different way so they could get up into the pump and, and not have, you know, 1970s fuel line shortage. I was going to say, I think the person who came up with that statistic was underestimating the intelligence of the American people. I, I really don't care uh, what side it's on. I don't. As long as I know... When I get to the gas station, which side to line up at yep. the pump, at, that's all I care about. So even now, on both of my cars, I'll look at my little uh, – I, I, for the most part, they're both on the passenger side. So that makes it easier for me. I completely agree. And, and just because I know they're on the passenger side doesn't mean that I won't forget that it's on the passenger side and need to look at the arrow for reference. Yeah. Well, everybody likes to look at the arrow, right? That's true. Well, then there's a lot of people that don't know the arrow actually exists. Well, that's why we're here. Education. All right, people have asked me, actually not too long ago, somebody else asked me again, because I, I like to lease vehicles, and, and we I got into a discussion about this uh, with somebody. Okay. And people ask me all the time if it's better to lease or buy a car, because I'm actually doing both right now. So there are several things. I, I So I was thinking about this, and I, I was go, trying to go over through my head, and I think there's several things people should consider uh, as a great rule of thumb. All right, here it is. Don't buy a car if all you want is transportation. Okay. 
Explain, all right, explaining the rule is a little bit more complicated. So as I've always been taught, you buy appreciating assets like your house, right? Right. And you lease depreciating assets like a car. Yep. Because as soon as you drive it off the lot, everybody knows that it loses its value as soon as you drive it off, right? So if you buy a new car, you're buying both an asset and a depreciating asset. For the most part, the car is going to be worth, unless it's a collector's car, it's not going to be worth more than what you've paid for it, right? Um, maybe a collectible Ferrari or some kind of super cool vintage car, right? Right. So when you buy a car, it's an asset that you won't own free and clear because most people, um, when you buy it, are financing it. So you're not going to really own it for five or six years unless you pay with cash. And there's very few people. I know the Dave Ramsey method, you're supposed to pay with cash. And I, I, it's a good method. But there's then there's real life where most people finance their vehicles. Right. Right. So anyone who buys a good modern car now... However, can it, they can expect that car to perform quite well, maybe 200,000 miles, meaning no monthly transportation costs beyond insurance, maintenance, just the tires, the standard sort of things. Right. And this group of people really like their cars. They're happy with owning and maintaining their car, so it might be a good idea for them to buy it. Now, on the other hand, if you just need to get around, if you just need to commute to work, uh, take the kids to school, whatever, leasing is a far better option than owning because you're not going to face much in the way of maintenance costs. Usually just the oil changes. I know in my latest lease, um, the one that my wife drives around, they actually threw in the maintenance plan. So I just take it there, and it's already covered, right? Okay. Uh, you, regular washes, that sort of thing. That about covers it. And after the lease is up, you can either decide to buy the car, paying a reduced price of what they think it's worth at that time, or roll into a new lease on a brand new car. Now, this group of people, they don't care much about what they drive as long as the vehicle gets the job done and fits within their monthly transportation budget. So if they do care, the general uh, they generally would buy luxury vehicles, right? Right. Leasing actually helps them drive cars that would be out of their budget to purchase. Because you can actually because you're you're financing almost half or a little bit less than half of the vehicle, so you're actually can buy or drive a nicer car because you're not paying as much as you would if you were buying it. Because technically, I guess you're kind of, when you're leasing and then you, let's say you bought it, you're actually stretching out payments, let's say over 10 years, okay? Right. So it, it, you could be a long, lifelong leaser, which is okay, but you're all, and you're always going to get your transportation needs met with the best, the safest, the most technologically up-to-date, luxurious, fuel-efficient vehicle that's available at that time, about every three years. All you have to do when confronted with the buyer lease conundrum is really decide which type of person are you. Are you a car lover, somebody who's going to baby that thing and wants to keep it around for 200,000 miles, and that's okay, or you just need basic transportation, and you'll have your answer between the two. And, and that's basically how I do it, because I have my one, my Volt, that I bought, but part of buying that was economical reasons, because I got back so much in um, tax credits from the state and from the federal government. Right. But I, I do plan on keeping that car, because it is so fuel efficient. I like it. It's comfortable to drive. I don't mind taking care of it. The maintenance is fairly easy on it. I'll drive it forever. And there's enough room for the kids. But we also need something that's a little bit more size to take the girls to their baton practice and all their other activities that they're doing. So that's why we lease my wife's car, because all she's doing really, taking the kids to school in the morning, we're running them around to all these different activities, and then she's running to the grocery store or whatever for the most part. She's not driving to And when she does have to go to work, I make her take my car because the mileage limit on the other one is just a little bit too low for us. Right. So, and I think that would be one other consideration between lease and, and own 
is how many miles you're driving. Because I drive, uh, I drive a lot. I drive probably eighteen to twenty thousand miles a year. So it's better for me to buy than to lease. My my previous lease had a fifteen thousand mile limit. This one has a twelve, and we're right at about that right right now. So it makes more sense if you're if you're a high mileage driver, maybe to buy at that point. Because um, I when I bought my car, it just works financially out better for me. Um, they knocked off a bunch of money for the price, and I got. A smoking deal on it? And... I mean, that's just it, right? It always comes back to economics. Right. And I think anybody who's gone car shopping recently will tell you it's very difficult to get favorable terms when it comes to a lease. I mean, usually you're talking about X dollars down, which you're not getting back. So twenty four hundred. Well, you got to look at oh no, cost. you got to look at overall price. That's what right. I'm looking is overall cost of the vehicle yeah. for let's say three years. So whether it's you have to put some money down and then the cost per because. Let's say the overall cost for three years is, is, is $9,000. Right. Well, I could put $9,000 down and have no payments, or I could put $100 down and have a whole bunch of payments all the way through the lease. Right. They just want that money for the three years of the lease. So, it, so when people say, oh, but your monthly payment is only $99. Yeah, but you have to put a bunch of money down to get it to $99 a month. Yeah, I mean, people who look at the monthly payment and use that to judge whether or not they got a bad deal, in my mind, you're looking at the goalpost, but you're not really focused on kicking the field goal. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the one thing, though, uh, the other consideration I didn't mention is the cost of registration, especially here in Colorado, because if you buy a new car, it is a ton of money. Um, like Like we have a... It's a... 2016 whatever it's a it's a nissan rogue and it was what 500 bucks um 550 something like that for the registration and for the first year. year and that's and it goes down a little bit for the first couple of years but then i have to go back up if i buy an, if i'm leasing a new one so mm-hmm. it's always that high cost of vehicle registration now as my volt becomes older and older that cost of registration is going to go down and down and down yeah i mean i guess for me you know me and our listeners probably don't know this as much but i'm somebody who would never in a million years dream of signing a lease just wouldn't on principle i don't think it's a smart deal and i'm also the kind of person who likes auctions and likes going on craigslist and likes looking at cars like i'm in the facebook groups that have cars that are for sale for under six grand because those are the kinds of things that i'm really interested i'm more of a I guess you'd call them beaters would be the common term for them. But I like the older cars that have been worn in that have 120,000 miles on them that aren't going to last that long. But that I can also drive into the ground comfortably and not worry about, oh, I blew $3,000 and it went bad in a year. Well, I knew that. Right. You know, like, you know that going well, into Well, that's an it. interesting idea because if you – let's say we both have – let's say we both have $10,000. Yep. And we want to drive something for three years. You say you might go buy a beater for $10,000. Or let's say you buy a beater for six, okay? And, pocket and the then you pocket the other four. Yeah. Well, you're going to pocket the other four for now, but then you're going to have to spend $4,000 on extra maintenance because the vehicle is much older. You're going to demand more maintenance. You're going to demand the vehicle is taken care of a little bit better, and there's going to be more expensive parts that could go wrong you're going to spend that ten thousand dollars meanwhile i'm driving a nearly brand a brand new car with no maintenance on it that is technologically up to date that i just hit the button i can listen to the radio or i can listen to my stitcher app or i can listen to pandora right there and it just has the bluetooth already connected to my phone and the inside of the car so the kids are asking hey let's go listen to uh disney uh princess music and so we're already doing that and we've just spent the exact same money because your car died in three years and now i just turned my car in in three years and 
a $10,000 for both of us are gone. Well, you've done a very good job of painting a best-case scenario, but as I'm sure you're aware, the best-laid plans are never the ones that are actually executed. <laughs> and when you have a lease, they write them in such a way where, yeah, if everything goes right and you only drive 1,000 miles a month, of course you're, you're going to get out of it scot-free, quote-unquote. But for the most part, that's not what happens. And they find ways to ding you for maintenance that didn't happen or little accidents. No, because I, the- I, I could tell you they I've never, in all the leases I've had, which are about five, I have never been asked once when I turn the vehicle in if I've ever gotten an oil change. Ever. They've never asked that. Uh, can I... I hope my wife is listening to this episode. That's because you're a man, and you don't get taken advantage of in situations like that, and you don't have mechanics and car dealers who look at you and say, oh, this guy's ripe. You know what I mean? If you were a 24-year-old woman, they would be asking you all of those questions. They would be trying to hit you up for those extra Really? Things. I would guarantee it. Because I, well, and then again, I come across as kind of an a-hole. And so, (laughs) frankly, uh, and so I I I have never been asked those questions. I have never had a problem with just turning in my lease uh, and getting something new. And uh, so for me, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, and, and to each their own. You know, everybody has their own personal experience. To me, you know, I'm comfortable with my auction cars. <laughs> but eventually, in maybe 20 years, those auction cars aren't going to be around anymore because you're going to need to get one of those self-driving deals. Yeah, no kidding, right? We need to go to an auction at some point, by the way. All take, right. the, take this podcast on the road. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a couple. There's a Pacific, the Pacific Auto Auction. The Denver, uh, city and county of Denver has theirs. That's Aurora the does, too. We should definitely hit up a city and county auction because those are a blast, man. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, we'll take the podcast on the road. Yes. We'll see how we can techn- we, technologically figure that one out. Get a little auctioneer interview going on. Jason, sure. We're dreaming big. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's what we do here on the Driving You Crazy podcast is we dream big. And educate. Uh, well, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for uh, Jeff Larson for uh, joining us. It was our first interview on the podcast. It won't be our last. Uh, so we appreciate that, that discussion. So we hope to do more of that in the future. Uh, Until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I'm Joseph Peters, the overnight producer. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.